During the American Revolution of the late 18th century, not every resident of the 13 rebellious North American colonies wanted to separate from the British. What happened to the thousands of people faithful to the crown when independence was achieved? Hey everyone, Christine here with an episode based on a topic that I've been interested in since I was a child. What happened to the colonists on the losing side of the American Revolution? But before we get to the loyalists, I have a really fun announcement to make. If you haven't already seen it on our various social media accounts, let me be the first to tell you that we at Footnoting History have joined up with the lovely folks over at Tee Public to create a whole new shop. Gone is our rather boring, uninspired shop, and in its place is a new lovely one, and you can find it at footnotinghistory.com shop, so through our website, or at tpublic.com, that's T-E-E public, slash stores, slash footnotinghistory. On it, you'll find several different designs, including, of course, our logo, the classic quill And you can have it put on everything from t-shirts and pillows to travel cups and stickers and just put your individual spin with the colors that you choose. We will let you know through Facebook, Twitter, and all the other channels that we have whenever we have a new design or some sort of discount. If you get something, let us know. Send us a tweet or a picture or fly the bat signal, you know, whatever works. It'll make us super excited to see you showing your footnoting history fan pride. And now we go from the early 21st century back to a story from the late 18th. The American Revolution, at least when I was in school, was regularly taught from the perspective of those who wanted to have the 13 North American colonies split from Great Britain. While discussing things like the Boston Tea Party and the Founding Fathers, you know, think John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, or shouting about taxes and tyranny and recounting the British surrender of 1781, the fates of the Loyalists regularly got overlooked. So here I am to remedy that and discuss certain aspects of them. Although the United States calls 1776 the birth of the nation because that is when the Declaration of Independence was signed, the first shots of war actually occurred in 1775, and it formally ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1783. So this was not some sort of overnight severing of ties. This was a struggle that went on for several years. During the conflict, there were two main groups of people from the colonies who sided with the British. The first and the larger group were white colonists. They are the most obvious group, the one usually referred to when historians estimate that one in five, or 20%, of white residents in the colonies had pro-British leanings. Whether they were new to the colonies or had families living there for generations, they wanted to maintain their status as Britain's overseas subjects. Maybe they were loyal to George III, or maybe they had ties back to Britain in the form of family or business, or maybe they were simply content with their lives the way they were and saw no need to change things. The reasons that they were loyalists were as varied as the intensity of their loyalism. While 19,000 went to actively fight for the British, at the other end of the spectrum, there were those who kept their feelings to themselves, not getting that involved. 
The fact that not everyone took strong actions declaring their sentiment makes it impossible to have a definitive tally of the exact number of loyalists in the colonies. The other group we are covering today is the Black Loyalists. When the British realized that they were going to have to take on these independence-seeking colonists, they knew they were going to need help. So an offer was made. The royal governor of Virginia said that any, quote, indentured servants, Negroes, or others, end quote, who came and fought for the British would receive freedom in return. For a population that was predominantly enslaved, or in fear of being enslaved if they were free, this was more than a little tempting, and black Americans came to the British side in droves. Can you blame them? Certainly not. Now, before I continue, I want to pause to acknowledge a third group that associated with the British during this time. Several native tribes like the Mohawk acted as British allies, not loyal British subjects. That is a different dynamic than the one I am covering today. To go into the reasons why certain tribes chose to help the British and other tribes chose to help the Americans should be its own episode. So while I am not going in depth about that aspect of revolutionary relationships here, I want to make sure that I pointed out that they were involved as well and that they got to be acknowledged because I don't really like to overlook whole groups of people and their contributions to something. So now we know who the main players are and we have to address where they went and what happened to them because that's obviously the whole point of this episode. As much as the American Revolution was a war between the 13 North American colonies, who, for anybody who's keeping track, started to call themselves the United States in September of 1776, and Great Britain, it was also a civil war. Families could be split down the middle, quite literally with brothers or fathers and sons, fighting opposite each other on the field. When the conflict on the battlefield ended, and the United States became an actual independent country, pretty much everyone on both sides of the conflict was dealing with some form of trauma. Most loyalists opted to stay where they were, despite their personal preference of remaining British. But there were at least 60,000 loyalists, who, by the way, owned some 15,000 slaves, who would not remain within the United States borders. This is quite the population to be dealt with. For many, the process of changing homes during the war began by moving to one of the loyalist stronghold cities. The main cities for this were New York in New York, Charleston in South Carolina, Savannah in Georgia. Shout out to our listener, Savannah Pine, who I informed had to be a loyalist because of sharing her name with there, and St. Augustine in what is now Florida. These loyalists had their lives disrupted, their livelihoods lost, and their homes and properties confiscated or destroyed. It was not uncommon for the states to identify loyalists and strip them of their land and property and then banish them, because they were, after all, basically traitors. These people had literally given up and lost everything for their failed cause. They turned, understandably so, to the British for aid. And the British government knew that they had to do something about all these displaced, poor people who supported them. After all, they were British subjects, and they fought for the right to remain so when others wanted to abandon it. First, during negotiating the peace treaty, 
They tried to get the United States to agree to compensate the Loyalists for land and property taken, but the only thing they obtained was a promise from Congress to ask the states to do something about it, which of course meant that the states would not and the Loyalists were out of luck. They were further out of luck if they wished to stay close to their old homes. Many of the Loyalists' biggest hopes centered on St. Augustine in eastern Florida. Though it was not part of the 13 rebellious colonies, this region came under British rule at the conclusion of the Seven Years' War back in the 1760s. During the American Revolution, it became a lightning rod for Loyalists, a place of safety and security beyond the war and, they hoped, their new permanent home. This was not to be the case, because in 1783, the same Treaty of Paris that showed they would get no compensation from the United States also revealed that Britain agreed to cede its Floridian holdings to Spain. The Loyalists would have to evacuate. This was delightful. Britain hadn't left them completely high and dry, though, even though many of them probably felt that way. It formed a commission specifically to take in, examine, and decide on Loyalist claims for lost property and objects. This commission was named, wait for it, the Loyalist Claims Commission. It took committee members over six years to sort through and investigate more than 3,000 Loyalist claims. Only about one-third of the total amount claimed by the Loyalists was reimbursed, with white Loyalists getting priority and blacks getting the least amount. More than half of black applications got denied completely, and even the least compensated whites got more than the best compensated black Loyalists. And those best compensated black Loyalists often only even got something because they had a prominent white Loyalist to speak for them. The overwhelming Loyalist emotion at this point was disappointment, and maybe, for some, disillusionment, because they had had hopes and seen that they were not going to be reached. Great. So, they had no homes and little forthcoming compensation. Since it took years for all the claims to be sorted, where they lived had to be determined before compensation was necessarily granted. So where did they go? Well, Britain gave them a pretty wide-ranging option of relocating to anywhere within the empire. And that's exactly what they did. Getting the Loyalists out, regardless of which location they were in, spanning from New York down to St. Augustine, took months. Although the British had surrendered in October of 1781, and the last British soldiers left New York in 1783, St. Augustine was still evacuating Loyalists as late as November 1785, well after many other Loyalists who left earlier were already settled in their chosen destinations. I have to admit, I had no idea exactly how far and wide the Loyalists scattered when I started researching this, but to answer where did they go with everywhere really would not be too far off. Three places where Loyalists sought refuge were the West Indies, Canada, and Britain itself. Sadly, it is believed that 50% more Blacks left the United States as slaves as opposed to as free Loyalists. But... Those free loyalists certainly left their marks. One really cool contribution is that long before white missionaries went to the West Indies, black loyalist preachers began the first Baptist churches in Jamaica and the Bahamas. Now, not everyone wanted to move to the islands, though, and some went in the other direction. 
approximately 3,500 black loyalists made their way to Canada's maritime provinces like Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And another amount decided that they were going to go across the Atlantic to London, England. For many in both of these groups, this would not be their last stop. In Canada, land was allotted to the black loyalists, but it was certainly not as much that was given to their white counterparts, nor were their locations as desirable. Unhappiness and inequality were widespread. So, at the end of 1790, the dire state of these people was brought to the attention of the government in London, and Britain agreed to help those who wished to emigrate elsewhere. They did not anticipate, however, that over 1,100 people wanted to relocate to a place where they believed their opportunities would be better with less prejudice due to color. Where was this place that so many black loyalists wanted to go to instead of staying in Canada? Hold that thought. Let's consider it a tiny cliffhanger because we're going to go back to it shortly. At the same time as all of this settling into Canada was going on, the group that went to England was having its own difficulties. With the commissions committee failing them, and work being nearly impossible to come by, they by and large found themselves destitute and on the street. This upset many a Londoner. Even the new Committee to Aid Black Poor, have you noticed they weren't very creative in their naming, found the problem could not be alleviated merely by distributing sixpence to the people each day. So Britain decided to try and remove the black population from London, preferably as quickly as possible. They planned to relocate them to the west coast of Africa, in modern-day Sierra Leone. As you can imagine, this is not what black loyalists envisioned when they decided to come to England and enjoy their lives in freedom. Still, eventually, after they insisted on having a written guarantee that they would be free in Africa, almost 700 people were contracted to leave England in the fall of 1786. However, when the ships sailed, over 400 of the contracted people failed to go. Some chose to return to the U.S. when they learned that Britain didn't want them. Still, others didn't trust that there was really a plan for a proper colony, or, they believed even worse, that Britain was purposely duping them, and once they got on the ship, they wouldn't go to Africa at all. They would be headed to the new penal colony of Botany Bay in Australia. Those who did go, ultimately, were a combination of ex-slaves from the former American colonies, and free black people who had come from other areas. Now, what this mixed group encountered in their new home on Africa's coast was not exactly an improvement on their situation. They faced bad weather that hurt their health, and it caused numerous deaths, and it prevented their attempts at agriculture and building a solid colony. It was very difficult for them to try and succeed because everything seemed stacked against them. When the weather problems passed, they had issues with local slavers, and, eventually, their settlement was burned to the ground during a conflict with a local tribe leader. It was a horrible situation. The number of settlers continually diminished until only a few years in, there were less than a hundred. But this was not the end, because in 1792, something life-changing happened. And if you've been paying attention, I bet you can guess what that was. Our contingent from Canada arrived. Yes, their exodus from Canada for greener pastures took them to the same colony that the London group was having difficulty keeping alive. They revitalized the settlement, which was really completely restarting it. 
Although this colony would too undergo immense trials, it eventually became the capital of Sierra Leone. So there, via a podcast about loyalists during the American Revolution, we stumbled upon the origin story of an African capital. These are the sort of unexpected connections that really make me love history. As you've probably guessed already, Canada was a huge destination for white loyalists too. In fact, over 30,000 white loyalists emigrated there. These loyalists predominantly settled in the same types of places, like the Maritimes or Ontario and Quebec. And although the British government claimed it was fine for the loyalists to go there, that doesn't mean absorbing them was an easy task. Officials scrambled to accommodate people, with Quebec, for example, setting up townships so quickly that they didn't even have names, just numbers to identify them. And where would all the land that was meant to be allotted to these loyalists come from? Well, one solution employed was to take back land from absentee owners, split it up, and redistribute it. Then, rations had to be found. The officials were often noted as being stingy, making sure that everyone only got exactly what they needed in order to have it last longer, which, while it kept people alive, didn't really help them adjust. What formed in Canada, despite the initial growing pains, were strong Anglophone communities influential in the founding of Canada as a nation, and which served as a haven even years after the initial settlements, because they received loyalists who had tried to live in other places but found their original choices unsustainable. One of the other choices that the people made, much like for the black loyalists, was actually going to Britain. This was selected by over 7,000 people, many of which had emigrated there before the Declaration of Independence was even signed. So aware were they of the changing tides in the colonies. But going to Britain was different than being a British colonist. They often found themselves outsiders, and they did not remain there. So, what's another place they could go? We've already had Britain, Canada, and Africa as destinations. Of course, the next one that we haven't really discussed in depth yet is the Caribbean. The Caribbean was a destination actively championed by the British government, with two of the most popular destinations there being the Bahamas and Jamaica, which we already mentioned in relation to the black loyalist preachers. Now we'll go into it a little bit more. The most interesting thing to me about the Bahamas settlement scheme is that the British government purchased the islands basically for the purpose of offering the loyalists a place to go. A plan was drawn up for how much land a person would get based on the size of their family, color of their skin, and their sex. Loyalists filled not only Nassau, the modern capital of the Bahamas, but also the nearby Caicos Islands, setting up ill-fated cotton plantations. They were ill-fated because just as they were getting started, the world seemed to conspire against them, which you'll notice seems to be a trend in most of these colonial experiences is that they tried to set things up and the world seemed to not want them to. The cotton gin began to change the industry, and there was a renewal of war around the area. And of course, the infamous Caribbean hurricanes didn't help either. Although the islands seemed like a good idea when the loyalists arrived in the mid-1780s, by 1803 some were already leaving, with even more going during the War of 1812, and most plantations there were abandoned by 1820 either due to the deaths of their owners or because they had made the decision to try their luck elsewhere, like by returning to the United States. The plantation period there was clearly, as you can tell, 
very short-lived. In Jamaica, the influx of about 5,000 refugees basically doubled its population. The island was not well-suited to taking on such massive amounts of people at one go, and it endured a cycle of hurricanes that also damaged attempts at agriculture for almost a decade. There, between 1783 and 1784 alone, nearly 30,000 acres were divided out for American refugee loyalist use. But many found their land to be large areas of salt marsh, and either refused to occupy it, or accepted it but then abandoned it within a year. In Kingston, loyalist settlers found themselves at odds with the pre-existing merchants who resented the tax exemptions granted to them to ease their burdens. These difficulties caused a group of loyalists to decide, you know what, Jamaica's not working out for me, and they hopped over to the Mosquito Shore on the coast of what is now Honduras. There, they joined in the logwood and mahogany trade, only to find that in 1787, their evacuation from there was ordered, driving 2,200 people, many of which were the refugee loyalists, to what is now Belize. What a life! Every refugee loyalist had a different path, but no matter what, it really wasn't easy. Look, okay, so we're going to end with three specific examples, just to give you a taste of some actual lives and some of the things that they went through, both good and bad. First, we'll start with white loyalist James Dandred Yarborough. He started off in South Carolina around 1772, but by 1787, he was in Belize, like I just mentioned. Having been banished before when he was in the colonies and having his land confiscated during the war, he spent time in Jamaica and on the Mosquito Shore along the way. But his name is still mostly known in Belize, because land from his plantations were used for a British cemetery there. Meanwhile, example number two, we have black loyalist John Provey, who was a North Carolina ex-slave who served in the British Army during the war. He then went to England, and his claim was denied by the commission. There, he and his wife Anne, who was a white woman, and daughter Louisa were among those scheduled to go to Africa and they were indeed on the boarded passenger list. However, both John and his daughter died before their ship sailed, leaving Anne to go on to Sierra Leone alone as a widow. Our final example is white loyalist Elizabeth Johnston. She followed a path that went from Georgia to Florida to Scotland to Jamaica to Nova Scotia. With that last jump, I mean, come on, this is a lot of jumping, this last one was taken to help her child's failing health, but being without her husband, she went from Jamaica to Nova Scotia with the child and or some of her children and not her husband because he remained in Jamaica. Unfortunately, when she did this, that meant she would never see him again because he passed away in Jamaica, never making it to Nova Scotia, where Mrs. Johnston finally felt happy surrounded by other loyalists and saw her children grow up to live fruitful lives. What it all ultimately indicates is that as a refugee loyalist, you likely endured years of discomfort, travel, and grief as you fought to build a new life in a foreign place that may or may not have welcomed you, no matter how British you wanted to be. And there was little way of knowing when you first set out exactly how or where it would all end. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. 
Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>